Okay, let's go ahead and take a moment and dismiss children for Children's Church. So any four years old up through second grade can go to room 107. It's amazing to think that the little ones that are departing for Children's Church were newborns just not that long ago. And, and speaking along those lines, you know, the Lord has really uh, blessed our church with a lot of babies in the recent years, certainly, but even in the last couple of weeks, we've had a number of babies born here. Think of uh, Ryan and Maggie giving birth to their son, Simon Gregory, and um, also Josh and Paige giving birth to their son, Grayson Samuel. The Lord has blessed us with these little ones, and, and in a very real sense as a church, uh, we get the idea and we get the feeling that these little ones are born to all of us. Yes, they're certainly the property of their parents and the property of the Lord, but they feel born to all of us in a very real sense. We, we celebrate their birth. We were joyful as a church body to get the emails that had their pictures with the statistics of when and what the uh, size and weight and everything of, of the children are. We, we, we take great joy in that. We celebrate their birth. We watch them grow, and we take interest in our little ones as they grow up in all of the ways. We think about children as they begin to grow, and they grow in size, they grow in speech, they grow in intelligence, and, and all these ways they're, they're growing that a person can grow. And I'm bringing up this idea of birth and children for a reason. It was the Apostle Peter in the New Testament that used that as a very powerful metaphor and used it as a way to think about our Christian walk. So that's a metaphor that we all can relate to because we know what it's like to look at the face of a baby. And as the Apostle Peter used it, he said, as a newborn baby desires milk so that that child can grow, he challenged the Christians. He said, so you should desire the word so that you could grow thereby. So that was a powerful, helpful, memorable metaphor that we could look at a child and all know what it looks like to grow physically, but then we would gain the spiritual insight and understanding to say, wait a minute, that is how as Christians we grow. It is the word of God. It is the word of Christ. It is the scripture and hearing from God that we hunger, we eat, we have our meals, and by that we grow up into maturity. So this idea of our spiritual growth being compared to a baby and taking steps of growth and maturity is a great way to help us introduce the scripture passage that we'll be looking at today because in our scripture passage, we are going to be observing a birth, not of a physical birth of a child, not even of an individual person being spiritually born but what we get to see this morning in Acts chapter 11 is the birth of an entire church. And it is a special birth because it is the birth of the very first Gentile church. What begins to happen in the book of Acts, and as we've had this theme going, as we've been studying all the way since chapter 1, is that the book of Acts is describing the acts of God. 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, as he works in people and through people so that the gospel is spread throughout the earth. We've watched this begin and develop in Jerusalem, which would really be the the epicenter of religious life up to this point. But what we are beginning to see today in Acts chapter 11 is that the center of Christian activity is making a shift, a shift, if you will, from Jerusalem to a Gentile city, and from there the gospel begins to spread to all of the ancient world. And so what we are really observing this morning, and I want us to have this metaphor in our mind, what does the birth of a church look like? And and how did God grow that church? And, And do we even get to see a glimpse of this newly birthed church of just a couple of years of age begin now to also minister to others around them? Because that really is what the Lord's intention is with our life. It's not just to save us and to change us from the inside, but it is to mature us to the point where we then begin ministering to others. And we're going to see all of that compacted this morning into just these few verses in Acts chapter 11. So I've titled this morning's message, A New Baby Named Antioch. Now, it is not a physical baby, although any expecting parents or parents down the road, you know, just saying, if you need a baby named... Maybe Antioch would be one of them that you could consider. This is the birth of an entire church in the city by the name of Antioch. We're going to be looking at this this morning. As I mentioned, Acts chapter 11 opens up what we are going to be seeing here in the book of Acts as a shift of focus away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is still going to have some influence in this church, sending delegates, uh, sending people to minister to this newly planted work here in Antioch. But then Antioch is going to become this launching pad for many of the Apostle Paul's missionary efforts and his journeys. But we'll get to that in the coming weeks as we continue on in the book. But we'll see this as a focus and a shift away from Jerusalem towards Antioch as really a new church planting hub where things begin to spin outward from this city. We're going to learn a lot this morning about what was going on in this area in the ancient world and even looking at a map of Antioch where it's located. But let's get into our text here this morning. Acts chapter 11 will begin in verse 19. What we're going to see in these first couple of verses is the birth of this church, that it was born... In a certain way, it was born by the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how any birth, new birth, spiritual birth by God takes place. It comes from hearing of Jesus Christ, all that he is, all that he's done, and placing your faith and trust in this Christ and following him. And so this is exactly what we're going to see in these opening verses here in verses 19, 20, and 21, that this church is birthed by hearing the message of Jesus Christ preached. Look with me in verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. 
But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, one of the first things that we notice in this passage is that it's throwing us backwards a couple of chapters. Verse 19 opens up by introducing us to that memory of Stephen's death. So if you were with us as we studied Acts chapter 7, we learned back there that it was Stephen who was full of the Holy Spirit who stood up and preached. And he preached a history of the Old Testament. He brought it forward to the time of Christ. It was a long sermon that he delivered there in Acts chapter 7. In our scriptures, it was 53 verses long. We took a couple of weeks as we looked at the content of that sermon that Stephen had preached. But he finally ended that sermon, and it ended up ending his life, that he told those listeners they were stubborn of heart that they had resisted God in their life. And he, he confronted them with their attitudes towards God. And he said, God, out of his love, sent the righteous one. That was his name for Jesus in that sermon. Sent the righteous one to this earth. And instead of listening to Jesus, you killed him. Oh, that crowd was furious to hear that. They, they were stubborn, stiff-necked people who didn't want to think that something they had done was apart from the work of God. And, it's, and it says that they ground their teeth in anger. They picked up stones. They rushed Stephen out of the city. And they put those stones to his body until he died. He was simply preaching the message of Christ. Is preaching a message of salvation, a message of God's grace and his love to send Jesus Christ to this earth to save sinners. They were infuriated by this. They didn't want to wear the cloak of culpability. They didn't want to deal with conviction. In anger, they ground their teeth and they killed Stephen. And that event back in Acts chapter 7 sparked a great persecution against the church, against those followers of Jesus and it caused them to scatter throughout Judea, which was around Jerusalem, Samaria, and beyond. So our story here in Acts chapter 11 picks back up with the question, what happened to those scattered believers? What happened to those people of faith in Jesus Christ who were bearing under the weight of this persecution and could take it no longer, and it displaced them as people, run out of their homes, run out of their communities, run out of their city, some of them hundreds of miles away. Well, now we see what is going on with this, these displaced believers. Did they just run for cover and hide? Or did God have something very wonderful for them to do in a new ministry being displaced? I've got a map here I'd like to show you of just um, what we're talking about here. So just to orient us a little bit, we have Jerusalem at the bottom of this map here. This was the epicenter of all that was going on up to this point. And as Stephen is murdered for preaching Jesus Christ, and the followers of Jesus are coming under very hot persecution, people began to spread, and these are the three names that we looked at in our text so far. Up here in this region, um, 
There is uh, some cities on the coast. They aren't marked on this map, but Tyre and Sidon would be along there. As well, Cyprus would be the island over here. And then we've got Antioch, which is going to be the, the location of our text today, all the way up here, hundreds of miles away. These Christians are displaced from their homes, from everything they knew, scattered out, finding new places to live. Just to orient us with this map here for just a moment, these things were taking place in modern-day Lebanon. That is where Phoenicia is, uh, modern-day Lebanon. Syria would be to the east on this map and to the north of Israel there. And as you get all the way further north and to the west, that's modern-day Turkey. Antioch is still a city, still existing in modern-day Turkey. Verse 19, though, tells us that the gospel had went first to the Jews, that it had gone first to the Jews. And, and as it went up, it went to the cities of Antioch and some of these other places. Antioch was a, a city in ancient um, Turkey as we know it today, but in the ancient world that had a population of about 250,000 people. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. So this was very metropolitan. It was a travel area, a lot of people coming in and out of the city. You can imagine of, of all of the trappings and all of the luxuries and all of the pleasures, all of everything that a large city would be able to afford, the city of Antioch was this. It was a very prominent ancient city in a very strategic location. Verse 19 tells us, though, that the gospel went out first to the Jews, that some of those people who were living in Jerusalem and were scattered went and they spoke only to their Jewish friends and neighbors, if you will, that they knew in these other locations. However, there were some Greek-speaking men from Cyprus and Cyrene who preached to the non-Jews. It tells us here that these were the Hellenists. Now, we've encountered some Hellenists before. Those would have been Greek-speaking Jews. But the Hellenists referred to here are Greek-speaking non-Jews. These are Gentiles. And so the gospel is coming to these Gentile people here who are living in this great city of Antioch. Our text says that they preached the Lord Jesus. This is what was spoken. This is what was heard. It was the Lord Jesus. And, and I don't want us this morning to miss the simplicity and the power of this mission. These believers who were displaced from their homes, simply wherever they located themselves, wherever they were planted, began to share with others about the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they did. Run out of their home, wherever they landed, they began sharing with their new neighbors in their new neighborhoods and in their new city, they began sharing about the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. They proclaimed Jesus. They told people that we have a creator in heaven, God, who because of our sin estranges us from him that we of our own accord and of our own works cannot work our way back into his good graces, but that he in his great love for us sent Jesus Christ, his only son, to pay the price for our sins on that cross 
and all who trust in him and believe in him would be forgiven forever of their sins and be put back in fellowship with God, their maker. This is what they proclaimed. Jesus, the bare gospel. We are sinners, but God is a great savior and that salvation comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. No longer do we have to be estranged from God, but we can be put in the family of God as one of his own through Jesus Christ. This is what they preached. Forgiveness, salvation of sinners through Jesus. And what do we see happens in verse 21? As they preached the Lord, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. God himself gives birth to a new church there in the city of Antioch. This is a great phrase, the hand of the Lord was with them. That's used a number of times in the Old Testament. It's used a few times in the New Testament, but it simply just means this, the favor and the power of God was with them in what they were doing. Oh, that we might pray that God's hand would be with us as a church, that his hand would be with us as we share Jesus Christ, that the hand of the Lord would be with us in our efforts as we seek to carry out the Great Commission. What, what tender favor this phrase captures. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of them believed. We notice what didn't happen here, that is sadly the attempts of many in church planting today and trying to start a new work. They might try to, oh, I don't know, assimilate to the culture a little bit better. Uh, they might try to uh, employ some marketing tactics they might try to soften down the message of Christ to be more attractive. Brothers and sisters, let us remind ourselves to how are people birthed in the Lord Jesus Christ? It simply comes in its bare bones away in our text here this morning that we proclaim Christ and his hand of power and favor is on that and turns people's hearts to the Lord. We don't have to manufacture evangelism. We don't have to dress it up. We don't need to look at the world's business tactics to do this. We proclaim the beauty and the grace and the loveliness of Jesus Christ that he washes our sins clean and puts us in favor with God forevermore. That is the message of the gospel. That is what saves. And that is what is attractive. And so here, even in the very first church that is birthed, and we look at it as, as it's born. They preached the Lord and a great number of people believed. This event teaches us an important lesson, especially as it comes to missions. You know, sometimes missions and evangelism happens intentionally. We'll see this throughout the book of Acts, that there is a, a place that they want to go. They locate a city on the map. They send people there. It's done with a plan, and it's done intentionally. That happens. Certainly, the gospel goes out that way. But isn't it interesting and intriguing to us here that it also can happen very organically? That, that the gospel is given out. It is evangelized. A church is planted here. 
not by trained pastors and missionaries. These were just simply people who were under the burden of, um, uh, of, of oppression, who fled their homes, and wherever they landed, they simply shared Jesus Christ. From persecution to evangelism. This was a very organic start. It was very situationally in the way that it happened. These displaced, persecuted believers did not complain. Uh, they didn't run for cover into a hole somewhere and say, oh, we, we better never speak the name of Jesus again. Look what happened. It cost Stephen his life and it drove us from our homes. They said, no, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Christ is everything to us. We can't but go into this location. We can't but move into this home. We can't but begin new jobs here in Antioch and not speak of Jesus. And so the bubbling up of a very organic evangelistic ministry was taking place as they proclaimed Christ. The power of God was with them and a new church is born in this city of Antioch. Those are the first few verses, 19 through 21. This church, the very first Gentile church, was born by the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, a savior to sinners, a welcoming plea for all to come to him, to have sins washed away and have a new life from the inside out. Aren't we weary of this world's goods, peddling these things that, supposedly cause, uh, are, are, are to give us fulfillment and satisfaction only to bite into them again and again and find out that they are but fruitless joys. When along comes this message of Jesus Christ, the Savior who washes us clean, begins us of a new life and a new purpose and a new destination and sets our souls on fire. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters. We don't need to add anything to it. We sure better never take anything away from it. This was the hand of God powerfully planting a new church. So what now? A baby's been born. What are babies to do after they're born? We want to see them grow. We want to see them nourished. We want to see them progress. That's exactly what takes place in this new birth this new church here, it goes from baby to wobbling toddler to moving into ministry. So let's look again at our text this morning in verse 22. We see this going from this birthed church by the preaching of the Lord. Now it's growing by the truth of the Lord. Verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and he saw the grace of God, that, that's beautiful, I'll come back to that. When he, when he came, he saw the grace of God blanketing over the city. He was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch and for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This wasn't just the birth of a church. This was the birth of a new title, a new identity, a new way to refer to these believers as 
Christians. But we go back to verses 21 and 22. The, the original home base church, if you will, the original home base of operations was back in Jerusalem, and they hear the report of what has gone on in Antioch. You might say, well, how do they respond? I mean, this, this is Jerusalem. What are they going to do? Well, they respond by sending an experienced and skilled worker, a man by the name of Barnabas. Now, what do we know of Barnabas? He's come up twice in the book of Acts already. Back in Acts chapter 4, we're told that his real name, his name given to him when he was born, was Joseph. But he had such a reputation of encouraging people that the apostles called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Well, what a very neat nickname to have. He was such an encourager to other people, they just started calling him encourager. Hey, encourager, uh, come here and come there. And so Acts chapter 4 tells us where he came from, and he was such an encourager. We know that he sold property because there were needs in the church. He sold off pieces of property, came and brought all of that so that people's needs could be met to encourage them. We find him later in Acts chapter 9 when Saul came to know the Lord, but because of Saul's reputation for persecuting the church, no one would trust him, no one would stand by him. Barnabas enters the picture in Jerusalem and vouches for the apostle Paul. He says, I know this man, the work that the Lord has done in him is authentic. I've watched him minister. And so Barnabas stands by him until the rest of the church welcomed him in. He was always one of encouragement. He was one given over to being driven to encourage people. He was strong in his faith. He built others up in the Lord. And so Jerusalem, when they hear of this, said, Barnabas, go. You go and you encourage that new work in the Lord. And so they send him these hundreds of miles to Antioch to minister there. Barnabas comes in verses 23 and 24. He comes to Antioch. He observes the Lord's work. And let's just say this, Barnabas, he's not impressed with the culture that he sees there. He's not impressed with the architecture or the buildings. He's not impressed with the food. What he's impressed with and what makes him glad is that God's grace was at work there. God's grace was evident, it was present, because people were turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only was he glad in the Lord, he was glad with the Lord. He was glad with all that God's work was doing. Brothers and sisters, I hope that as we hear about reports around the world of Christ's name being praised, of believers coming to know him, that that gladdens our hearts that we would find great and deep joy and gladness in missionary reports, in sending people from our church on a missions trip and then hearing when they come back of how joyful this is, of hearing of our own ministering locally. When we catch word of this, that it makes our hearts glad, just as it did here to Barnabas. He wasn't impressed with all of the trappings of everything else, he was impressed and he was gladdened with God's grace. And so immediately he has this word of exhortation that those people there would hold steadfastly to the Lord. 
uh, that they wouldn't find Christ to just be a, a, a cotton candy taste for a moment and then peel off back to their old way of life, but that Christ would be forever held on to steadfastly and faithfully. So he jumps on the scene, he exhorts them. What a great picture this is of this newly birthed work. Just think of this, this church that is forming in Antioch, there is joy, there's camaraderie, there's forgiveness, there's excitement, there's growth taking place. But this new baby, this new church birthed here in Antioch was never intended to remain as a baby. It was time to grow. And Barnabas shows some great humility here. He understands that his own limitations would not allow him to do this work by himself. And so he connects the needs of the city of Antioch, the needs of this new church with other people's strengths. So it tells us that he goes and he finds Saul. We know him as the Apostle Paul. Shortly, he will stop being referred to as Saul, as we've seen him for the last couple of chapters. His name will change to Paul, and we will know him by that name going forward. But Barnabas realizes and knows that he has limitations in his giftedness and his abilities. And so he says, I'm going to go find Saul, and I'm going to bring him here. Let's look again at verses 25 and 26. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Barnabas knew that this task of teaching this new church was too big of a task for him. He remembered Saul and he went to recruit him. This was Saul's hometown of Tarsus. He goes there and it says he was looking for him. Now, we think of the word and the name Saul. And we remember that we have not heard of him for a little bit in the book of Acts. The narrative has shifted back to Peter and Peter's preaching and Peter's involvement with what was going on. But now re-enters the picture Saul. And I've got a slide here that I want us to think through for just a moment. And it's a brief timeline. It doesn't go through all of the Apostle Paul's life, but it goes through it up until this point. And there is a period of Paul's life that we're just not absolutely sure what he was doing. The New Testament doesn't address it. And these were known as the silent years. And it is Barnabas's trip to Tarsus to grab Saul and say, come and teach in Antioch with me that pulls Paul out of these silent years. To the best of ancient archaeology and writings and everything, and these are estimates for sure, but to the best of our ability, we believe that Paul was born in Tarsus around 5 AD. In his teen years, he was trained as a Pharisee by the teacher Gamaliel. Uh, we've already seen this happen. Paul refers to this in his own life as well. But he sat under a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish teacher, maybe the most famous of that time, named Gamaliel. He was trained very, very well. In his late 20s, he was converted on the Damascus Road. We looked at this in Acts chapter 9. 
But then there's about a 10-year period where we have very, very little information of what was going on in his life. We're told in one place that he went off for three years into Arabia. And then it's very likely that he went back to his hometown of Tarsus. And now in his late 30s, maybe he's 38, 39 years old at this time, Barnabas brings Paul to Antioch, which is Acts chapter 11. A couple of years later, in his early 40s, we see his very first missionary journey taking place, launching from the city of Antioch there. So having a little bit of this, you know, what was he doing in those 10 silent years? Well, we don't know a whole lot, but we could very safely assume that he was just living out his walk with Jesus Christ wherever he was, even though we don't have a lot of detail about it. But we're back on the scene now, and Saul is back in the picture. Barnabas and Saul labor together for an entire year in Antioch. We say, well, what are they doing laboring for that year in Antioch? Oh, nothing much. Just fulfilling the Great Commission, which was to make disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. That they were to teach, they were to instruct, they were to indoctrinate of all that Jesus said and did. They were to make them little Christs, if you will, following their master, savior, and Lord, Jesus Christ. So that is a very key term there in verse 26, that they were teaching, that they taught the church, that was the food for the baby church that brought it into maturity, that brought it out of infancy, and that it grew by the teaching of Barnabas and Saul. And we see over and over how this is done in the New Testament. Growth in the church, growth in the people happens through a solid teaching ministry. And brothers and sisters, that is why we put great emphasis here at Lexington Community Church on the teaching of the Bible. It is the food that nourishes our souls. We need to be taught. We need to be corrected. We need to be informed. We need to be nourished. We need to be reminded of all that we have in Christ Jesus. And it is the teaching, the unfolding of the book, if you will, that puts food and nutrients into our heart and grows us into maturity. Paul and Barnabas stayed for a year in Antioch, taught that newly birthed church and helped them grow into maturity. And that teaching took root in their lives. The people began to look so much like Jesus Christ. They began to act so much like Jesus Christ that the city called them Christians. It's interesting what's taking place in that verse there at the end of verse 26. When they were first called Christians, they did not generate that word on their own. They weren't sitting around and said, well, what do we want to call ourselves? I think we'll call ourselves Christians. This was a term that was called upon them, that was placed upon them from the outward culture of how to identify these people who were followers of Jesus Christ. We would simply call them little Christs or those groups that follow Christ. And what an interesting and very flattering, if you will, term to be called 
that their lives looked so much like Jesus, they called them followers of Christ. Here they are growing. Here they have been birthed. Here they are being nourished by the word. And we come to the end of our text here this morning in verses 27 through 30. Not only was this church born, not only did it begin to grow, but now it grows to the point of actually ministering to others. Again, Jesus Christ does not redeem us in our hearts to sit still, but it is to grow and it is to grow and then be partakers of the Great Commission and begin ministering to others around us. This is exactly what happens beginning in verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers. And this is probably better translated brothers and sisters. It didn't just mean males, but to everyone living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Well, here you have the Jerusalem church continuing to serve the church in Antioch. They were connected. They were not disconnected. These were not silo churches that that never came together and never had any association. The church in Jerusalem continues to send support, and they did it by way of sending these prophets. They sent people from Jerusalem that would instruct and encourage and build them up. And one of these men, whose name was Agabus, prophesied that a famine was coming, and it was going to be a very severe famine. This very famine took place during Claudius's reign. He was a Caesar of Rome from the years AD 41 to 54. So somewhere in that 13-year range, this took place. But look what happens in verse 29. These spirit-filled believers, these Christians, these followers of Jesus Christ respond to this famine, to the prophecy of this famine. The disciples determined everyone according to his ability. It's likely they took some time, thought this over, prayed about it, made a decision and a determination. What is the Lord asking of me to do to contribute to this? Everyone according to their ability they sent relief to the brothers living in Judea. Their new birth in Christ, these believers in Antioch, and their new faith that was growing in doctrine, it was growing in teaching, they were understanding the way of the Lord, it immediately jumps into action and they join in the ministry and in the care of other Christians. It's just automatic. It's family. We don't have to ask if we're going to do this. We just determine between us and the Lord, how are we going to do this and how much are we going to do this? How are we going to help? It was never a question of if. And this is not just a ministry to others. This is a ministry to strangers. This was a ministry to Jewish strangers living hundreds of miles away. This was certainly an act of God tenderizing their hearts in love and care 
and ministry for others. And look at what they call them in verse 29. Brothers and sisters. This is who they are sending this relief. They are sending uh, coins of money. They are sending aid and assistance. Who are they sending this to? They're brothers and sisters in Christ. Living hundreds of miles away that they've never seen. Never having met or known the names of them, but they knew they were united in Christ, and so they were family. This is the power of transformed lives in Jesus Christ. These Gentile Christians living in Antioch are being stirred in their hearts to love their Jewish believing brothers and sisters in Israel. This is pretty fascinating if we just stop for a moment and consider it. So they put their faith into action. You'll notice in verse 30, they sent this gift as they collected all of this money. They send this gift through Barnabas and Saul, and they send it to the elders in Jerusalem. It's an interesting word. We have not seen that word yet in the book of Acts. This word elders. Who are these elders? Where did they come from? What is their role and what is their purpose in God's kingdom? What is their role in the church? Next Sunday, we're going to study this very topic. We're going to look into the New Testament and at this group of people known as elders and see what they do and how they come about in leadership in the New Testament church. But we'll leave that for next Sunday. For now, let's close with these thoughts. We are witnessing here the birth of a church. The hand of the Lord was at work, strength into the proclamated gospel of Jesus Christ. These displaced people simply spoke of their Savior, spoke well of him, spoke truthfully of him, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and this church was birthed. And what we notice is that the message of Jesus Christ in the rest of this text, it shapes everything. The message of Jesus Christ is what is preached. He is the one that people turn to. His body, the church, is the one that is added to. And his followers are called by his name. And so to be a true New Testament church means that we are shaped by Jesus Christ and his gospel. It should be the center hub of all that we do. Once these people are born of faith and born of the Spirit, they are discipled, which means they're rooted in doctrine and they grow into maturity, which is exactly why we want to make sure that we prominently say to you as a church, we want to be about discipleship, not just about making converts or having conversions. It's about growing in the Lord through discipleship, through being taught and feasting on the nourishment of God's word. This maturity then finally shows itself. As these new believers began to grow, it showed itself in love for the Lord and in love for his church. It took action. It did not just sit there aware but doing nothing. It moved. The spirit of the Lord moved in them and they obeyed. In chapter 13, in just a couple of weeks, we'll also see that this maturity spun out evangelistic outreach to plant other new churches all throughout the ancient world. But for now, we see this love being manifest 
in meeting the needs of other Christians. Lexington Community Church, let's take a text like this this morning. Let it instruct us. Let it correct us where we not, might not be accurate in what we're doing, either our beliefs or our practices. And let it reinforce what we are doing that is to God's glory and to the pattern laid down here in Scripture. That means, may it be that the gospel of Jesus Christ shapes all that we do. We are not ashamed of him. We are not ashamed to proclaim him. We are not ashamed to proclaim his saving grace for us. And then may our discipleship that we have here, the proclamation of the word, the ministries that we have, may that mature us as a church into action, into ministering to other people with our love. May it not sit still. This is the great commission at work. This is why Christ has saved us. This is why Christ matures us. And this is why Christ sends us so that we might minister the gospel of grace beyond our borders. Let's close our time this morning in prayer. Father, we thank you for this instructive text of scripture this morning. We are glad to know that your hand of favor is on the proclamation of your gospel. Lord, we pray for that. We ask for this as a church that your hand of favor would be on us as we speak your truth to our neighbors, to our family members, and in our community, that you would put strength into those words. And then, Lord, like this very first church here in Antioch, might we be a church that is devoted and committed to discipleship, to growing in your word, having our ears open and listening to what you have for us so that it might put us into action, that you might mature us, that we might be servants in line, willing and ready and able to do all that you ask of us to do. Lord, it is a great privilege uh, to be servants in your ministry. And I pray that you might take this text this morning and press it on our hearts Bless our church with your hand of favor in all that we do in accordance with your scriptures and by the power of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things, amen.